Hey everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Talk Talks. I'm Anthony Burden, here to present a conversation between poet and author Catherine Graham and Helen Walsh, the president of Diaspora Dialogues. It was recorded live Sunday, June 4th, 2017 at the Memorial Public Library in Calgary. Catherine is the author of The Celery Forest, which was part of CBC Books' Top 10 Canadian Poetry Collection of 2017. She's also published the collections Her Red Hair Rises with the Wings of Insects, Winter Kill, The Red Element, Poopa, and The Watch. Her first novel, Quarry, was published with Two Wolves Press. Winner of the International Festival of Authors Poetry Now competition and an Excellence in Teaching Award from the University of Toronto's School of Continuing Studies, her books have been shortlisted for the Raymond Suster Award, the CAA Poetry Award, nominated for the Relit Award, and she's appeared on CBC Radio 1's The Next Chapter with Sheila Rogers. Her writing has been published in literary journals in North America, the UK, and Ireland, and has been frequently anthologized. Helen Walsh is a writer, editor, publisher, and producer. She's the founder and president of Diaspora Dialogues. Formerly, she was also the publisher and president of the Literary Review of Canada and the founding director of SPUR, a national festival of politics, art, and ideas. Helen's writing's been published in journals and anthologies, and she's just completed her first novel. Her award-winning films have been programmed at more than 25 film festivals in 10 countries and have sold to CBC, Showcase, BBC, the Danish Broadcasting Corporation, and Women's Television Network. Previously, she worked in New York City and Los Angeles on interactive film projects. Without further ado, here's Catherine Graham in conversation with Helen Walsh. Thank you. Thank you. So, yes, Corey, um, just a little synopsis, is about a young woman. Well, she's a young girl in the beginning of the novel and going through to young adulthood. And she lives beside a water-filled limestone quarry. Um, and in addition to all the trials and tribulations there are of growing up, she also has to deal with loss, family loss and grief, and then family secrets. And the metaphor of the quarry is a big part of Caitlin's journey, sort of the way that, well, we all carry a quarry inside us, this sort of subterranean place as we move through the present. So I'll begin with the beginning, and then I'll jump ahead to another section. I didn't know what a quarry was until I saw the one that would belong to us, a pit carved for mining. Dig what you need, the dynamite gap, leave a hole for evidence. Don't think about air filling it up. Air fills up everything. Water makes the quarry more than it is, the blue we were drawn to on the dock looking out, my mother on one side, my father the other, their big shoulders pressing me in. It was our first summer living beside a lake that wasn't a lake, with wind tents of blue moving in the jeweled sunlight, up and gone and up again. The limestone cut into jagged rock, layered with the weight of dead animals, ancient sea animals, imprints. Lush green trees they surrounded as a forest. Dad had found the place by chance, after spotting the for sale sign outside a white gate that led to a long gravel driveway, a bend that led to a mini lake, the house of Mum's dreams. We made up dives that summer, me and Cindy, the watermelon dive, legs in a V, the about-to-die dive, a rambling, dramatic shotgun death off the dock, the scissor-kick dive, a flutter of pointed legs in the air, and the drowning dive, rise to the surface and float 
like the dead fish that smacked against the limestone rock, oozing decay's stink. With a two-year advantage, I gave my nine-year-old cousin a three-second head start whenever we raced off the dock to reach the floating raft. Sometimes a hit of the giggles cut through my determination, a memory of something we'd laughed about while lying in the dark, tucked in single beds, or while eating Rice Krispies, opening up our food-filled mouths to shout, seafood diet. Mom served as judge as she sat on the dock smoking her brand, Benson and Hedges. She was there to rescue us if we were to drown. I knew this was an illusion. Though an athlete, Mum could barely swim, and deep water scared her. She excelled at land games, sports with rackets like badminton and tennis, especially tennis. Our shelves of knickknacks were stacked with gold trophies, tiny females frozen in mid-serve. Watch, Mum, watch. Caitlin Maharg, I'm always watching. Okay, I'm gonna jump ahead now. <clears throat> so the family of three has become a family of two. It's now just Donald Maharg and his daughter, Caitlin. Um, so they've lost the mother. And to deal with that loss, they've gone to New York City the first Christmas. They're staying at the St. Regis. And to Caitlin's surprise, Don's new girlfriend shows up. So hence the title, Three in a Room. It was hard walking in twos down the frantic sidewalks of Manhattan. So threes were close to impossible. Bags and elbows and bustling bodies snow in your face. But I was getting used to the squonking honks from the parade of yellow taxis and the awkward silence between us all. Dad looked at the street sign. This way, he said. Gold doors and high fashion mannequins. A crowd had gathered by the model in the window who was trying not to blink. I stared at her nose where air moved in and out. Dad tugged the sleeve of my peacoat. Come on, we're going inside. The department store was so long, I couldn't see the end of it. Quaffed women stationed like sentinels, bottles in hand, ready to spray. I scanned the nearby shelves for a bottle of Chanel No. 5 and sprayed some on my wrist. Now you will smell her. Not the cancer-ridden bed sore smell that permeated my nightmares, but the scent of a healthy mother. I sniffed. Something was missing. Oils hers to make the mother scent. Linda exposed her wrist to a sprayer. Dad sniffed. What do you think, he said, looking at me. I knew the fruity scent from a girl in residence, an annoying, chatty friend of my roommate, Susie. I didn't like the scent then, so I knew I wouldn't like it now. It doesn't work for me, I said, stuffing my hands in my coat pockets. Not for you. Here, he grabbed Linda's wrist and led it to my face. When I tried not to smell it, I sneezed. Oops, I said and wiped my nose. I drizzled snot on her inner wrist. It's okay, said Linda, grabbing a Kleenex from her purse. Jesus, said Dad, enough of this. He undid the knot in his plaid scarf. You want to look at clothes, you look at clothes. So we split up. Dad went to the men's, Linda and me, the ladies. Caitlin? The tap on my arm made me jump. Linda was holding something. Something yellow. You okay? I thought this sweater would look pretty on you. I didn't want to try it on, but I did. I don't know why. Shades of yellow washed me out. We had spears in our hands, long silver sticks. We stabbed the bread cubes and dunked them into the bubbling cheese. 
gathered our lift in cheesy strings. The fondue restaurant had been Linda's suggestion. We'd left the travel guide at the hotel and were tired and hungry to get it. You're not eating anymore, Caitlin, said Dad. I stabbed the smallest chunk of bread and swirled it above the bubbling cheese. See? That's not eating. That's playing with your goddamn food. Linda smiled at me. Maybe she's not that hungry, Don. Did I pick the wrong place? We'd have fainted by now if you hadn't spotted it. It's New York City. We do new things. I never thought to ask Linda why she'd come to New York or why she was having a tough time that Christmas. I couldn't direct my thoughts to outcomes. They melted like snow on the tongue. I had extra space on the long wooden bench sitting across from Dad and Linda. They were probably touching knees. So I guess Linda was smart to choose a place like Swiss Bliss. We didn't have to stare at each other. We could stare at the pot and respond after swallows with yum, um, and other guttural noises. And when that died down, we could listen to the voices around us. The little girl sitting next to me didn't want to stab her bread with cheese. Chocolate. I want chocolate. You'll get chocolate, said a woman in a black dress, but you have to eat the cheese first. The little girl put down her stick and crossed her arms. She started kicking the bench with the back of her foot. Thunk, thunk. I could feel the vibrations, like a ticking clock, and I hated the sound of a ticking clock, like Nana's grandfather clock that sat in her kitchen in own sound. It took away your concentration, and that's what her foot was doing. Thunk, thunk, taking a piece of me I didn't want to give. I slid my foot over to block her swing. She stopped. She didn't look at me. She was looking at the waitress carrying a pot of her precious chocolate. Maybe grief was more like snow, falling and falling, taking the shape of your body. There must be some way to make peace, for grief to live on but less heavy. Snow melts to water. Water lets you float. The little girl was eating her lip-smacking chocolate. She looked at the liquid she'd pulled around her fork before tonguing the nutty layer, eyes half shut. She made this sound like she was sucking a soother, her tongue tapping the roof of her mouth. Horrible, that little slap. I slid down the bench as far as I could without touching the knee of the next stranger, but the little smack followed. I couldn't get away from it, and when I closed my eyes, I felt this slap inside me, the sound of dirt hitting wood, of dirt flying from shovels. I shifted back beside the girl in one long swoop and tipped her milk onto her lap. Mommy! I righted the glass and used my serviette to stop the dripping. Sorry, I said. It's okay, honey. Accidents happen. I smiled when I heard that voice, the tone maternal. But when I looked up to say thank you, the woman was leaning toward her daughter. We walked back to the hotel, carrying our brown bags of stuff. American flags flapped in the wind. We didn't have so many flags back home, only on Canada Day. Here, every day was America Day, red, white, and blue. Except for blue, we had the other colors. What made theirs so bold? Stars and stripes versus the hand of a leaf. That's what it looked like, the palm of a hand in the shape of a leaf. My palm in a plaster of Paris when I was in grade one. Once the imprint hardened, I brought it home. I love it, Mum had said, placing her palm on the imprint, her hand healthy and big. Her palm didn't fit, but that wasn't the point. The point was to press herself in, the way I'd pressed myself in, to make a mark out of me. I hadn't had any wine at Swiss Bliss, but when we stepped into the hotel lobby, I wished I had. 
Our daytime adventure was over. Next step, sleep. Me and Linda in the same double bed. How about a nightcap, I said, peering into the lobby bar, home of the Bloody Mary, the red snapper. Dad headed towards the elevators, but Linda stepped back. I see a saxophone. Must be live music. A nightcap would be nice. Dawn? In the lounge, Dad sat next to me, Linda across the table. We ordered some drafts. The waitress carried them over on a round tray. She set down three beer mats, then three beers. We all looked at the beers. Wait, Dad said. The waitress turned. They're foam heavy. Pardon me? You heard me, he held one up. It's half foam. Dawn, said Linda, they're not that bad. Dad hit the drinks menu. For what they're charging in here? Sir, I'd be happy to return these for you, sir. The waitress righted her round tray. I've already sipped mine, I said, rubbing glip gloss from the rim. He pulled the pint from my hand and passed it to the puzzled waitress. He did it so quickly it nearly toppled. Here, said Dad. Oh, she said in a different voice, high and thin. She wiped her fingers on the front of her black skirt. I'll be back in a moment. With no beers to look at, we looked at Dad's drumming fingers. They were bad, he said. I know my beer. Linda's chin tilted upwards. It looked like she wanted to say something. When her lips parted, I thought, here it comes. But the sound was a dry cough. I stared at the barroom wall, the, the mural of old King Cole. See his face, Dad said. We looked at the king's face. He's letting one go. No, said Linda. Oh, yeah, Dad said. He lifted his leg and tilted the chair. Dawn, said Linda. Dad, I said. He mimicked the king's grin. Look at the two of you, he laughed. You look like them. Dad slapped his knee as he eyed the others in the mural. See? Sure enough, the gestures were laughing, the page boys blanching, and the knights covering their mouths. The king's feet were twisted like his face. A different waitress brought her beers. Her dark hair was streaked with a gray strip, like a lopsided skunk. She didn't look at us when she set down the glasses. No foam, only the odd floating bubble. Three songs later, the three of us sat facing the same direction, like sparrows turned toward the sun. As if the sax, the sound of the sun, had unraveled the knots in our bodies. The fresh tension we'd brought to the table and passed on to the waitress, the one who never came back. We thought they were finished, the trio, so when the skunk-haired waitress whizzed by us again, Dad asked for the bill. We gathered our bags and our coats. With our backs to the musicians, we weren't prepared for another song. Perhaps I should say I wasn't. When the music started, my body tightened. I turned to Dad. He was watching them play their song, his and my mother's, this guy's in love with you. Did Linda know? I checked her expression. It seemed she'd picked up on something. Dawn, she said, looking at the floor, your scarf. I'd seen his eyes do that, retreat and push at the same time. Only this time he wasn't looking at the family room floor. It's a beautiful song, a hard one to play, and the trio played it well. No vocalist, it could have been worse. Linda picked up the scarf and wrapped it around his neck and set green bills on the table. After Dad blinked, his gaze resettled. But for that brief moment, he'd shown more control than the model we saw in the Fifth Avenue window. I didn't see his chest move. Thank you. Thanks very much, Catherine. It was beautiful. So at the beginning, you used a line from one of your poems, uh, dive in, turn to water before it freezes. 
And it is a line from a poem that you'd published previously. And this is, um, this is a book, your first novel, uh, whose character has experienced some of the things you've experienced in life, uh, but it's not autobiography. So talk to us about the process of using both facts of your life and previous poems as inspiration for, but not reportage of, mm -hmm. uh, writing this book. Yeah, so just a bit of background about how I came to the writing life, and I think, because everything is sort of melded together, and it's interesting, it's almost been very organic, sort of like the quarry, where it's dug, and then all of a sudden this water fills it up, and then it's this presence. So, um, like Caitlin Maharg, I lost my parents at a, a, at a tender age. I was a first-year student at McMaster, and my mother died. And then in my last year, my father, well, I'm not giving the novel away, right? <laughs> but the father dies in my life. And um, so, and an only child, grew up as an only child, there was a lot of grief to deal with. And I was very shy and introverted and overwhelmed. And then you're doing other things too that generally you do later in life, like deal with wills and picking out coffins and um, also doing things like emptying the family home, selling the family home. And, I, and somehow I managed to get through and complete a degree and then went into teacher's college. So, but through this, in dealing with the grief, a, a concerned friend said, what, said to me, why don't you go and see a counselor? So I did, and the therapist suggested that keep a journal, you know, write things out. If I wasn't gonna talk it out, maybe I could write it out. So I did that, and, and there was some kind of release with that, certainly no cure, I'm sure many of you know this as well. But through that, I started playing with words. I wasn't just writing to get things out anymore. So I started playing with images and rhythms and memories of my parents. And it was fun. It wasn't just like venting. I was like, whoa, this is like, you know, when you're a kid and you make art and then you bring it home and put it on the fridge and you're like, yeah, it's the best ever. So it was that kind of uh, making of a joy feeling. So eventually I shared this with a friend of mine and she said, you're writing poetry, those are poems. So it was so distant for me that a poem and a poet and someone like me could do that. I, I mean, it was so obvious, but so far removed from my mind that it really took someone else to see it and say that to me. And then the light bulb went off. I want to know. I want to know. I was teaching grade three at the time. I took a leave of absence from my job, went to Northern Ireland, did an MA. I wanted to know about poetry. So then, as Helen mentioned, um, well, in my thesis, um, mainly it was about a daughter's attempts to come to terms with the deaths of both her parents. Those were sort of the, the forming poems of my first manuscript. And, uh, and I thought, I naively thought, I just write one poem about my dad, one poem about my mom, and then I'm done. And no. <laughs> they demand to be written, and now they demand to be written, not just in poems, but in prose. And so I think of a coiled spring with, with um, poetry. You know, it's really tight, and you've got that energy, and and if it's really rea um, reacting to the reader, which you hope, you never know, it's got that sort of pumping energy of like, wow. Um, and to me, it was almost like I wanted to do things with my writing life that I couldn't do with poetry. So I thought, well, let's try prose and let's try start. So it really it was an organic sort of thing that there were things like scenes and memories. And, um, and as I say, when I... I started thinking about them as characters, even though my parents are somewhat very, not entirely true to life, because my dad actually never said those things that I, that I, read, that I read there, but the essence of his character is in there. So 
And I guess, too, because I was an only child, um, I had no siblings to say, do you remember this or do you remember that? So it was up to me, even if it is sort of fiction. So I really, I have dreams about them. There's the fiction, there's the poetry. It's like one kind of circular sort of space. Um, I don't even know if I've answered a question now. <laughs> well, you have, and what I found yeah. remarkable, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful book, and what I found remarkable about this book is that often when poets come to write their first novel. They write a poetic novel that is, is really just a really long poem. But you don't do that with this. This is a, a real novel so that the inspirations, the metaphors, all of it is worked in layer, very much like a quarry, worked yes. in layer by layer by layer. And when I got to the metaphor about the life contained within the quarry walls, I thought that's what this novel is, that you have worked it so well, you have, you have mined all of this stuff and you've layered it in so that we discover it as the narrator is discovering it. And that's not the way poetry works, mm -hmm. uh, but it is the way novels work. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so I was curious about that because it is, because you've done it so well as a novelist and often poets who come to, to fiction after so many books being yes, published yes. Um, don't have a very heavy hand and you mm -hmm. have a very sparse beautiful hand in this well I really appreciate that because I worked hard to do that and I didn't want I I didn't want the language to get in the way and I did want sort of that the metaphor and the things that you know all the skills that I could bring as a poet to the manuscript but to be in the background um, so thank you for that because that was my hope so you don't know when you're this close up so I really appreciate that thanks Helen so I was curious about the image of the quarry. Um, in part, you know, when you read fiction or you read poetry, it is always about discovering your own connection to the work. Yes. Either that's because you resonate with an idea or a person or a theme. In my experience with this book, I resonated with everything because I felt like you were writing my childhood, including... I was. I was in her head. <laughs> <laughs> including the, the quarry, you know, the image of the quarry having grown up. And I guess we grew up in not dissimilar parts of Ontario, uh, not exactly the same, but not dissimilar. Um, so the quarry works, obviously, as a metaphor for her physical need to bridge the gap and, and how it, uh, again, not to do too many spoiler alerts, but how she works out uh, her physical manifestations of her grief. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's the quarry within us as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm just curious as to how you came to that, because I haven't actually read that poem of yours. Mm -hmm. um, so when I came, you mean when I came to that through the poem that the line that you mentioned or just in or terms just of the image? Or just a quarry as an image. Yeah. yeah. Um, well I grew I grew up in small town Ontario. I uh, was born in Hamilton and then we we left Grimsby and we moved to this place called Ridgeway and if you've ever been um, traveling to Buffalo you, you probably know Fort Erie this way to Fort Erie and um, of course this is Ontario <laughs> but um, you pass Ridgeway and you wouldn't even know that you were passing. It's a very small town. And this quarry is right beside a public quarry. But nobody really knew that it was there. So it was all forested. So at that time in my life, I didn't know my mother had cancer. It was uh, kept secret. I think, you know, you look back and the parents want to protect, but sometimes they can protect too much and try and keep too many secrets. And um, so, But I think when they saw it, they fell in love with it and they thought this will be a healing place for her. Uh, and, and it was, and um, so, but it was wonderful with the swimming and all of that, but then you turn into your teenage years and you're so damn isolated, <laughs> and uh, your peers are in town and you're like with this quarry, and yeah, there's a bird and there's a deer, and, 
but it fed so much of my imagination, and it still feeds it. It's very much alive in me. Um, I really feel like it's, it's an image that's endless and has so much to teach me. And in writing that book too, it taught me what it needed to be, and it, it, took, it took a while. Like it was, you know, stop and go, and I'm not sure about it, and then, and then it just sort of, but I, I wouldn't give up on it, and I just felt there's something there that was the energy of the quarry, and the energy of the quarry, even in my um, forthcoming book that Helen mentioned, The Celery Forest, um, there's still an, poems of the quarry within that manuscript as well. So it really, as you say, it's got layers, it's got depth, it's got, I mean, fossils are fantastic when you think about, here's the Here's the, the remnants of lives from millions of years, and it had that, and I, I, you know, you, you're touching the grooves of them, and, and I think it's such a tactile place as well, too, that um, it, just, it just really, I just wanted to see what I could do with it, with prose as well. But, but as um, the, the line that was mentioned and Helen picked up as well came from one of my poems, it's titled Back to the Quarry, and um, so it just kind of felt fitting to use a poem and a line from that as, as we go back to the quarry with this book. I was also thinking when I was reading it, because you referenced the depth of the quarry in several places and that she can see the bottom in some places but never reach the bottom, which of course is what grief is, you know, mm-hmm. and you have a line, you have actually a chapter called A Wound on Top of a Wound and, right. and how that uh, exponentially increases grief. Uh, but the metaphor is also apt for uh, family secrets mm-hmm. and the depth of family secrets and how deep they go like a quarry. And for my own project, I've been recently researching a lot of psychological studies on children who grew up in households that hold uh, secrets. And that's either Mm -hmm. children who have been uh, asked to keep a secret for one parent or Mm -hmm. more parents, or children who intuit that there's being a, a secret being held, because of course children are much more perceptive about mm-hmm. these things than, yes. than parents understand. Um, and the role of intuition plays a fair amount mm-hmm. uh, in this novel, and so I wanted you to comment a little bit mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, um, well that sort of thing as well. I, I think there's a lot of stories that are out there, but when you have a character that's quiet and deals with their intuition, I mean, there's so much material there, but sometimes it's hard to sort of get that out in scenes. Um, and it was interesting because you can see the dad's quite lively, and he was fun to, to write about. He just had so many things to say. Someone was like, okay, just shut up now. <laughs> now, the mother, it was interesting because when I was work, I, I worked with a fabulous writer, editor, and um, she's just, her name is Alexander Leggett, and she is the publisher of Two Wolves Press. And so when we were working on the later stages of the manuscript, she's like, we need more of the mum. Give us more of the mother. And it was a challenge for me because my own mother was very quiet. She was like the stillness of the quarry. So yes, you can use that with imagery, but then how do you bring that into scenes and character? So it really pushed me, and, um, and I, really, I really worked with that. And then I thought, no, she, she is coming alive. She does have things to say. And even in the silence that she, um, she uses within herself, but yet she was always moving her hands. She was a maker as well, too. So there's the, the stitching, the piano, and the cooking, um, and, the, and the watching as well. So, um, and that, that's, that's a thing as well, like a presence that doesn't necessarily always have a voice, but has a voice through nonverbal means really fascinates me. And so I really, um, so Caitlin's got that side of, of the mother, but she also has the um, 
occasional extroverted side of the father because you need to be an extrovert to survive through this world. <laughs> really, you do. Um, I was talking about this at the launch the, the other night, and then my partner uh, said later, nobody believes you're an introvert. <laughs> Like, what? <laughs> You're up there talking away and da-da-da. I'm like, oh, I'm an introvert. <laughs> and not only that, but shy. I didn't put my hand up once in school. So, but when you're passionate about something, the passion is the energy that fuels you. And I was passionate about poetry, um, not necessarily mine, but teaching it. So, um, so that really um, gave me the skills. And I, and I think I am a born teacher. I love teaching, and I've taught everything from kindergarten to 88-year-olds. So all span of life and enjoyed all of it. So the impact of The Secrets on Caitlin, um, I'm not going to, spoiler alert, I'm not <laughs> going to give away, there are ser there's, a, there's a secret on a secret on a secret, and none of which I'm going to give away, but just to focus. Well, that would have been a good chapter title, A Secret on a Secret, secret on, on a Secret. But just to focus on the impact of Caitlin, um, I was, it was remarkable to me was I was reading the novel, having just read all this psychological stuff, mm -hmm. to see that the manifestations are everything that I had read. So um, the impact on what, what the psychologists call it is, there are two, two things. One yeah. is um, inhibitory control. Uh, which is the, the impulse of children who have grown up in a household that kept secrets to A, keep secrets, to B, to be very quiet so others perceive them as trustworthy, so teachers reinforce that. Oh, um, often uh, eating disorders, which is something that's in the novel, trust issues, which are in the novel, uh, challenges with intimacy, which are in the novel, um, holder of secrets themselves. But, but then on the positive side, because children have to intuit what to reveal and what not yes. to reveal, they end up with very good what's called working memory and executive mm -hmm. functioning. So they're often children that outperform. They outperform at school, as this narrator does. Right. They outperform mm -hmm. in their human relationships because they have to judge always. They're, they're, they become judges at very young ages of, of other human behaviors and intuitions. Um, so all of those were completely real in this. Did you read the same psychological studies I was reading? Or did you just yes. build the character? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was fabulous. No, I, am, I actually was a, a psychology undergraduate. So I did my degree in psychology. Um, and um, and was, I'm always interested in human behavior. And I, I didn't know all of what you just listed, but um, I, I just, I think that's it. I mean, there's patterns to human behavior as well and what you're tapping in there and certain dynamics that if this happens and this happens, then, I mean, because energy has to do something and, and, and somehow or another in that sort of, again, like that, that sort of energy of a quarry or what that is, how it holds the water, how the, the light hits it, how the trees, I mean, everything interacts, even in it seems in a still state, but the quarry will actually turn over as well. The water actually turns. Um, so, so much of what you're saying is just um, how to survive through the world and yet how we process things uh, within us and then, um, yeah, in patterns with what people go through. Fascinating. Well, and also just the... Um the refusal in the book to make judgments black or white, right? So the right. ecology within yeah. the quarry both mm -hmm. gives life and takes it. Mm -hmm. The ecology within the human relationships, which are very complicated. Yes. And it would be easy for this narrator to make judgments about mm -hmm. Linda, who is the father's new girlfriend, yes. about the behavior of uh, the grandmother who is, who is uh, not the nice old woman cooking 
cooking things for her granddaughter. But you don't. You recognize, you know, that to that this process of being a human is a really mm. complicated stuff. Mm. And sometimes we're able to have moments of grace and grand gestures and, and be a wonderful person. And mm. sometimes we're in the mud and the weeds and the jealousy and the hurt uh, and the anger. Yeah. So there is a great, mm. tremendous empathy in this novel. Mm. And I assume it's because of everything you personally have gone through. Um, and that the novel goes through, really the narrator has to deal with a whole whack of different types of characters. Mm -hmm. um, do you believe that, that that increased empathy is is really the culmination of, of that experience? Well, thank you for that. Um, I just want to listen to you talk, Helen. <laughs> is that possible? Wow, no, you've tapped into so many wonderful things that, um, you know, you hope as, as a writer, you know, you're, as I say, you're this close to it and you hope all these layers are in it. So it's wonderful to hear this. Um, and going with the empathy as well too, sometimes I think empathy is decision. It's sometimes easy to sort of just hang on to your judgments and, and as, as you mentioned, the grandmother is very much like that. Um, and there was a book that really, really had an impact on me in high school about empathy and about my grandmother. And that was The Stone Angel by Margaret Lawrence. Hagar Shipley, and I, I just loved how we could move into her inner world and then this sort of different space between what was going on within her, the sensitivity versus the hardness and the difficulty too. I mean, she didn't have an easy life. And so I think there's always more to us than what we seem for ourselves and more to the people that are around us as well. And so that really helped me deal with my grandmother who wasn't always the nicest person. <laughs> and, um, and I was determined not to see the world as black and white because that was how she saw it. Uh, and that's how her, her behavior was as well too. And I thought, no. So it was a conscious decision. I am not going to be that person through life. It's gray, the life that I know and experience, uh, it's gray. Somebody once said to me that when we can all understand that everybody is capable of everything, then we can stop sitting in judgment mm. of others. But until we recognize that all of us, given the right context, yeah. are capable of anything, mm -hmm. then we can always hold ourselves at a distance yeah. by, by pointing the finger and mm -hmm. saying, your behavior is less than mm -hmm. acceptable. Yes, yes. And I think really the life experiences that Helen mentioned taught me that. Um, I, I, I think as well, I, I, there's no necessarily good or bad. There's complexity, and there's depending on how you look at it. Um, and uh, I think that, too, as well, that it's, um, I mean, there's so many things that I learned through life, even though I lost my, I've been living now without parents much longer than I had them. Um, but they still teach me so much. I'm now past my mother's age, which was a huge thing in my life, to sort of outlive one parent. I still, I don't know if I'll make it to my dad's age. It's just around the corner now. But um, let's hope so. <laughs> Who knows? But, um, but that's sort of, I mean, I'm learning so much through them and from them, which I never knew would happen. And then also those of you in the audience too, um, you know, you, loss is everywhere. It's part of life. It's part of the deal, whether we like it or not. And I'm sure you've gone through that or hopefully you're not going through that right now or there's, there's all kinds of losses. And, um, and somehow we have to kind of cope with them and deal with them. Um, but at the same time, when a person is, you know, an important person in our life, they are still with us. Not talking like in the religious way, but just the essence of someone and the energy of someone. Um, and that, that's what I really hold on to. So would you, would you grace us with another yes, reading? Happy to. Thank okay. you. 
So I'm going to just end with this scene. And um, uh, Michael was mentioned. This is the university boyfriend. And Michael is taking Caitlin to the quarry. She's going home to see her father. Um, so he's driving her from Hamilton. And through this, um, well, he's going to then get to meet the father. Um, so this is the, that kind of a moment, the build up to that, and we'll see what happens. It's also his first time seeing the quarry. When Michael steered the truck around the bend of our long gravel driveway, he got his first view of the quarry. Wow, it's a lake. You really are in the middle of nowhere. He stopped on impulse and we stepped out of the truck. You swam across that, he said, taking hold of my hand. Around it, too. Looks cold, he said, as we walked toward it. Waves, but no white caps. I could see Dad's Eldorado parked in the carport beside Mom's Malibu, but the line of tall cottonwoods would prevent him from seeing us. When I looked to the sky, I saw movement. The osprey, I said, he's back. The bird of prey circled the quarry and stilled. Down he came, feet first. He hit the water hard with a forceful splash, and his body went under until he flapped back up through the white water spray. The fish twisted in his grip, the beak-like talons, but the osprey held on. Jesus, you don't see that every day, Michael said, stepping over a grapevine to get a closer look. I think he's got a small mouth. We got back into the truck, and Michael parked under the carport in Nana's old space. Then we walked down the path to the side door. Words of introduction swam through my head. Dad, this is my boyfriend, Michael. No, not right. Dad, I'd like you to meet a special friend of mine. No, not right either. I was still debating what to say when I turned the knob of the unlocked door and we strode in. There, in the middle of the kitchen, stood my startled father in baggy blue boxers and white gym socks. Oh, God damn, he said and put down his beer. Michael put out his hand like it was the thing to do, the only thing when confronted with one's girlfriend's father, red-faced, half-naked. Hello, Don, said Michael, shaking my father's hand. He cringed at the sound of his first name. I'm getting changed, he said, letting go of the handshake. He turned to the doorway that led toward the master bedroom. I led Michael through the other doorway into the family room. I didn't want him to see the butt of Dad's underwear. God knows there might be skid marks. We looked out the window at what we could see given daylight was leaving. We eyed each other and smiled, but didn't break into laughter. We knew Dad would hear us. He turned the radio off. Sit, Dad said when he came back in. He was tying the string of his cotton track pants. I'll stand, Michael said, rubbing his back. Long trip. I sat. But Dad didn't sit. He wasn't about to look up at the new man in my life, a man who dared to call him Don, not Mr. Maharg. He remained standing. I hear you're an engineer. We'll be in a couple of years if all goes well. Michael wriggled his right pinky finger. I'll have an iron ring. You know how to work with your hands? He looked at Michael's hands as if they had the answer. Yeah, I know how to work with my hands. Good, Dad said, cocking his head. You can help me trim that bugger of a hedge. Dad, I said, it's getting dark out. Michael has to drive back to Hamilton. Dad looked out the window. Plenty of light out there. I looked at Michael, who was looking at my father, their eyes like wrestling hands. Plenty of light, said Michael, eyeing the hedge. Moments later, I shouted over the loud chur of the electric hedge trimmer. If this isn't dark, I don't know what is. They were taking turns holding the ladder, climbing up the rungs, climbing back down. 
They were in their own battle now, the prize me, pointless. It got maddening standing there in the cold dark, so I went back inside and took the heavenly hash out of the freezer, setting the container on top of the tea towel I'd spread over my lap. I spooned cold, numbing mounds into my mouth. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Talk Talks with Catherine Graham and Helen Walsh. The episode was recorded live at the Memorial Public Library in Calgary on June 4th, 2017, where Catherine gave a reading from her novel, Quarry. The conversation was produced by Michael Booth and Helen Walsh, and this episode of the podcast was produced by me, Anthony Burton. Make sure to stay up to date with Talk Talks to keep up with the conversation. You can follow us at Talk Writing on Twitter, that's T-O-K Writing, and visit talkmagazine.ca for more. Thanks for listening.